foundation is built on solid rock. Yeshua. The rock of our salvation on Solace Radio. What we're going to be talking about this morning is what I'm going to call the Ezekiel Wars. And so the first thing I want you to do, if you will, I want you to go with me to Psalm 83. And we're going to read this psalm here. But before we begin to read it, I just wanted to point out, or, or I'm assuming that, uh, that most of you have heard by now that back in the latter part of July, there was an ancient copy of the Psalms found in Ireland, of all places, I mean, somebody was doing some digging <clears throat> of some type, and uh, one of the workers found this uh, this item lying there in the mud. And lo and behold, it is an ancient copy of the Book of Psalms, and and it's been uh, presumed that it dates somewhere to between 800 and 1000 A.D. Now, what was very interesting about this is it was opened to Psalm 83. Now. To really appreciate this, we've got to you know keep in mind that this was found open to Psalm 83 during the time when all this uh, the this hostility you know was 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 going on in Israel and Lebanon etc. You, you know which was of course was brought about because two Israeli soldiers were kidnapped in the north by Hezbollah and of course don't forget um, another Israeli soldier was kidnapped by Hamas in the south. So this ancient book of Psalms was found while all this was going on. Not only that, but just days before, there had been a call by some rabbis in Israel for Israel to pray Psalm 83 because of what was going on in Lebanon, what was going on with all the violence, etc. So I think we need to read Psalm 83, this psalm that was opened uh, in this ancient text of Psalms uncovered in Ireland. And so here it is. Verse 1 says, Do not keep silent, O God. Do not hold your peace, and do not be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make a tumult, and those who hate you have lifted up their head. They have taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted together against your sheltered ones. Now I'm reading here in New King James, and some of you have different translations, but um, interesting to note that other translations rendered this sheltered ones to be hidden ones or concealed ones. Some have hidden treasure or precious ones or things like that. But I want you to kind of get the idea that they have consulted together against those he has hidden, those he has concealed, those who are precious to him. Very important for a reason uh, for reasons that will come out later. Now they have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. Now first, I want you to notice that they want to cut them off from being a nation. They don't want the name of Israel to be remembered anymore. Who ultimately are they warring against? Well, they're coming against Israel, but who is their true enemy here? It's the Lord. It it says that they have... uh, 
those who hate you have lifted up their head. Your enemies make a tumult. So, again, very, very uh, important that we take note of that. Now, let's continue to read. For they have consulted together with one consent. They form a confederacy against you. And here are the ones who form a confederacy against the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites. Those are the first two it mentions. Very, very important. Moab and the Chagrites, Geval, Ammon, and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Interesting, because that's, that place has been in the news of late. Assyria also has joined with them. They have helped the children of Lot Selah. Deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera, as with Yavin at the book Kishon, who perished at Hendor, who became his refuse on the earth. Make their nobles like Oriv and like Zev. Yes, all their princes like Ziva and Zamuna, who said, Let us take for ourselves the pastures of God for a possession. O oh my God, make them like the whirling dust, like the chaff before the wind, as the fire burns the woods. And as the flame sets the mountains on fire, so pursue them with your tempest and frighten them with your storm. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be confounded and dismayed forever. Yes, let them be put to shame and perish that they may know that you whose name alone is the Lord are the most high over all the earth. And so now just a couple other things I want to point out to you here. This psalm, again, was being, uh, rabbis were declaring that Israel should pray this psalm. Why? Because it's calling God to defend Israel. Why? Because her enemies, God's enemies, have conspired against her, and they want to stop them from being a nation, and that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. And so they form a confederacy. And who makes up this confederacy? The first two mentioned are the tents of Edom, and we need to understand that Edom is Esau, that is the house of Esau, and the Ishmaelites. Of course, Ishmael was the firstborn of Abraham, uh, the firstborn of the flesh, and of course we know that his descendants make up the Arabian peoples. Um, Esau, Edom, that was, of course, Jacob's brother. But these two are in a confederacy, very interesting. The other ones that are mentioned, Moab, of course, Moab and Ammon come from that incestuous relationship that Lot had with his daughters back in the book of Genesis. The Chagrites, they are a band or a, a, a group of Edomites. Geval, Amalek, Amalek was a descendant of Esau. And of course, it mentions Syria as well. The, the bottom line is this, all these peoples that are in uh, confederacy against Israel are the enemies that Israel has always had in the past and the enemies that Israel has to this day. And so this psalm is asking God to, to come to Israel's defense and to destroy these nations, to destroy these peoples. So we understand why the, the rabbis would be asking Israel to pray this, but um, is it just a coincidence that this ancient copy of the book of Psalms was found, dating to about a thousand years ago, opened to Psalm 83 and found during the time when Israel was being asked to pray Psalm 83. I cannot consider that to be a coincidence. Now, they say that the name Israel, they want the name Israel to be remembered no more. So 
Why is it that the name of Israel uh, is has to be banished from their point of view? Now, the name Israel, we need to, we need to understand what that portends, what that what that really means. And so the first thing we need to understand is that Israel comes to us from the man Jacob, or in Hebrew, Yaakov. Now, I'm going to give you a, a quick Hebrew lesson here, and uh, we'll have to make this quick since uh, you know we have a limited amount of time this morning. And, and two, I'm going to have to ask you to listen very closely because I don't have a board here to show you these, these Hebrew letters. But I want you to uh, listen very carefully. Now, the name Jacob in, in Hebrew is Yaakov. Yaakov. Now, the root of this name is the word Akev, Akev. Now, we would spell that, in case there's somebody here who knows a little Hebrew, we would spell that Ayin Kuf Bet, Ayin Kuf Bet, Akev. Now, Akev has several different meanings. I'm going to give you a few here. Uh, one of them is end, as in E-N-D. Another meaning is reward. Um, akiv or ekiv, as it's pronounced in that particular situation, is a reward, something that happens as a result of something. Okay, and so typically called reward. Another meaning is supplant, to supplant. Now that should register some familiarity with you. And then the primary meaning is heal, H E E L, heal. Now, now we have all these different meanings. So how do we know how uh, which meaning the word gets when we find it in the scripture? Well, it's very important to understand that Hebrew, uh, to interpret it correctly, means that we also have to interpret the context correctly. Here's my point. You don't know exactly what I'm saying until you understand the context of what I say. And so to interpret this word correctly, whether it's heal, reward, supplant, and Everything has to be put in context. So here's my point. Akev, Ainkupet, is the root of the name Jacob. Now, when we go back into Genesis chapter 25, you recall with me that uh, Rebekah is uh, barren. She can't conceive any children. And then Isaac prays on her behalf, and then she conceives. But instead of being you know, really happy and, and uh, walking around uh, excited about the, the coming uh, birth of her child, she's disturbed because she realizes that something isn't quite right, remember? And so she goes to inquire of the Lord, and this is what the Lord tells her, that you have two nations growing in your womb. You have two peoples that are, that are growing there, and these two nations, he says, are going to be separated from your bowels, indicating to me that they're not going to be able to coexist with one another. And so, these two nations are growing in the womb. They're struggling in the womb. They're not going to be able to coexist with one another. And then on top of that, he says, and the older one, the one that, according to man's way of looking at it, is supposed to get the birthright, supposed to obtain the blessing. The older one is actually going to end up serving the younger one. Meaning what? That in reality, who has God got his eye on? Is it the firstborn, Esau, or is it going to be the one called Jacob or Yaakov. And so I would make the argument that from the very beginning, God had his eye on Jacob, that he understood that it was Jacob who was going to be the one who would be the patriarch of the covenant, not Esau. In fact, Malachi records that God says, Jacob, Yaakov, I have loved. 
Esau, I have rejected. Esau, I have hated. And there's a reason for that. Now, what do you think these two children were warring or struggling over? Well, I think it becomes obvious. Who's going to be born first? Who's going to come forth from the womb first? Why? Because of the birthright, because of the blessing. And so the Bible tells us that when she delivered, indeed, there were twins in her womb. And the first one comes out, and he's all hairy, looking like he wears a coat of some type, which to me, that, that would be an odd sight. But he comes out, and he's all hairy all over, and so they call him Esav. Esav. Now, what's interesting about this is that Esav, the name Esau, comes from the word that would be translated as grass, but, but not just any grass, not the fruitful grass grass, but the weeds, i.e. the tares, T-A-R-E, tares. And so the idea is, if you can picture in your mind a patch of ground with all this grass, and which is, again, in reality, weeds growing up, just growing wild, that's the idea behind, behind the name Esau, because he was all hairy. Now, he's the firstborn, but the second one, the twin, what is he doing as he's coming from the womb? He has his hand on his brother's heel. Now, we have been told, we have been led to believe that the name Yaakov or Jacob means supplanter. You'll recall that one of the meanings of the root Akev is to supplant. But you'll also should recall that one of the root meanings is heel, like the heel on your foot. So, here's what's interesting. If I take the Hebrew letter called Yod, which is the smallest Hebrew letter in the whole Hebrew, Hebrew alphabet, if I take that Hebrew letter Yod, and I understand that it represents a hand, because the word for hand is Yad, Yod, Yad. Do you hear, hear the similarity? So if I take the Yod, which represents a Yad, or hand, and I attach it to the three Hebrew letters, I and Kuf, Beit, that are translated as a heel, if I take the hand and attach it to the heel, the end result is Yaakov, or we would say Jacob. In other words, they called him hand on the heel. Now, again, we've been told that his name means to supplant. But if you put everything in proper context, what his name really means is hand on the heel. Now, why would they call him that? Because that is exactly what was going on when he was being born. His hand was on his brother's heel. Now, later on, it is Esau who makes the claim that Jacob or Yaakov means supplanter. In fact, it's in Genesis chapter 27. I think it's verse 36. He says, have you not rightly named him Yaakov or Jacob? For he has supplanted my birthright and my blessing. Esau is the one who makes that accusation, nobody else. And so, in my humble opinion, to say that the name Jacob or Yaakov means supplanter is to agree with Esau, who is a man, I might want to remind you, that the Bible says is a profane man in the book of Hebrews. In fact, um, in the book of Genesis, when he sells his birthright for a mess of pottage, the Bible says that thus Esau despised the birthright, the birthright that had come to him through Isaac. And 
Abraham before him. In other words, he despised the birthright that was given to Abraham. God made certain promises to Abraham and to his seed. And here we have a profane one, one who has no regard for that birthright, being given the birthright. Well, this is why God says the older one is going to serve the younger one. Why? Because God already knew the older one, Esau, was going to despise the birthright, that he was going to be a profane one. And you can't have a profane one in being the patriarch, if you will, of the Holy Covenant. And so it has to pass from Esau to Jacob or Yaakov. And so here's what I'm getting at. Esau is the one who says that Jacob means supplanter. But if we put it in context, what Jacob really means is hand on the heel. But why was his hand on the heel? If you believe he was a supplanter, then you would imagine he is still trying to supplant Esau's birthright. But if we don't agree with Esau and put his name in proper context, it simply means hand on the heel. But why? I'll suggest to you it was not to supplant Esau's birthright. His hand is on his brother's heel because his brother's heel is poised to crush Jacob's head. If Esau is being born first, he's coming out head first. Where's his heel? It's down, you know, it's hovering, if you will, over the top of Jacob's head. How do we know that? Because Jacob's got his hand on Esau's heel, meaning Jacob was coming out head first too. Well, if Esau's heel is downward and Jacob's head is upward, that means that Esau could have very easily kicked with his heel onto the top of Jacob's head. And on the top of that baby's head was a little soft spot. Had that heel come down on that soft spot when he was so vulnerable, what would have happened to Jacob? There would have been no Jacob. Consequently, what would happen to Israel? There would be no Israel. And so here's the point, ladies and gentlemen. Jacob's heel was on, excuse me, Jacob's hand was on his brother's heel to keep his brother's heel, his adversary's heel from crushing his head. He was protecting himself. So then, from the very beginning, who is it who has been trying to destroy Israel? Esau. Now, later on, you know, after Jacob obtains the blessing and, and has to flee and goes to his uncle Laban's house and lives there for, you know, a, a, a better part of two decades, he returns to his homeland. And the night before he is to reunite with his brother Esau, you remember what happened? <clears throat> He had an encounter with a man. Of course, this wasn't just any man. But at any rate, in this struggle, recall that Jacob's hip is pulled out of socket. And then the man asks him, says, what is your name? And he says, hand on the heel. Well, I mean, that's not what he really said, but he said Yaakov. But what does Yaakov mean? Hand on the heel. And so he says, no longer will you be called hand on the heel. But you will be called Israel because you have struggled with God. You've encountered God and prevailed and you will prevail over men. In other words, you are going to prevail over your enemies. In other words, if I can put it this way, no longer are you going to have to, no longer is your destiny. Let me put it that way. No longer is your destiny to, to continually be shielding your head from your enemy's heel. But your destiny as Israel is to overcome your enemies. In other words, to put your heel on their head. Israel's destiny is to take your heel and put your heel on the head of your enemy. Now, that's very interesting 
because you need to understand something. That that night is when Jacob was born again. He came, he, he encountered God as the man with a hand on the heel. After that encounter, he is the one who will overcome his enemies. He will be the one to put his heel on his enemy's head. As Israel, he walked differently from that point forward. He never walked the same way ever again. Israel is to walk differently. Israel's purpose is to walk contrary to the nations, to walk according to God's ways, not like everybody else does. And Israel's destiny is to overcome the adversary. Who is the adversary? Well, it's that serpent of old, the devil. In Revelation 12, it says that they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. You see, the Messiah said that I give you the authority to trample on serpents. In other words, I give you the authority because he has crushed the head of the serpent. First, uh, excuse me, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He has destroyed the works of the devil, 1 John chapter 3. And because he has done this, then he gives us the authority as his people to do the same, to join with him in trampling on the head of the serpent, to put our heel on the head of the serpent. Because you see, ladies and gentlemen, when we come to the Messiah, when we come to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when we come to the God of Israel and we are born again, our destiny changes. Our destiny is to now not be the one who has to con continually protect our head from our enemy's heel, but be the one whose, whose destiny it is to put our heel on the enemy's head. We are to walk different than everybody else. We're not to walk the same. You see, in short, ladies and gentlemen, when we are born again, we are born again as Israel. And our destiny is to overcome the serpent by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. And this is what incites the serpent to wrath because he knows Israel's destiny is to overcome him. He's already been defeated by the Messiah. Don't misunderstand me. But we also know that the serpent's not out in the bottomless pit somewhere. So there's, there's something that we've got to do. And so here's my point. You need to understand, and it's important to our study to understand, that you, even though you were not born ethnically Israeli, when you come to the God of Israel, you are born again as part of his people. You are grafted in, Romans 11, and you become Israel. And your purpose is to walk different than the nations. Your destiny is to overcome the serpent, to take your heel and put it on the head of the serpent. And this is, again, this is why he has always sought to destroy Israel. Because he knows what Israel's purpose is. And from the beginning, he has used people. He has used flesh and blood. In the beginning, in Genesis 4, we see him using Cain, who struck at Abel. And tradition has it that he killed Abel by crushing his head. Now, why would he do that? <clears throat> because in Genesis 3, the serpent had been told he was going to get his head crushed by the heel of the seed of the woman. So do you understand what the serpent's been trying to do from the very beginning? He's been trying to reverse the decision that was made against him in Genesis 3. He's been trying to take his heel and crush the head of the righteous seed. Cain crushed Abel's head. He works through people. Ishmael is the firstborn, but he's not the firstborn of faith. He's the firstborn of the flesh. And so he's not the one who's going to be given the, the, the role of propagating the holy covenant that God made with Abraham. That passes to Isaac, who is the son of promise. 
Ishmael, when Isaac was weaned and Abraham threw a big party for him, you'll recall that Ishmael was mocking and making sport. But we need to understand something. With that mocking came a threat. And this is why Sarah told Abraham, you've got to get him and his mother out of here. And then, of course, Isaac, his sons are Esau and Ishmael. Excuse me, Esau and Jacob. And so when Esau is born, what is he doing? His heel is poised to crush the head of Jacob. And Jacob's hand is on his brother's heel to protect his head so that it will not be crushed. Because if Esau's heel comes down on Jacob's head, there is no Israel. So then, from the beginning, from the beginning, it has been Esau who has been trying to crush the head of Jacob. Remember, Esau comes from a word that means the tear, as in the tear of the parable of the wheat and the tares. Two seeds that oppose one another, each one producing their respective fruit. And at the very end, we see them fighting, struggling. They've been struggling all this time. In fact, if you think about it just in natural terms, and you have two kinds of seed, one's fruitful, the wheat, the other's a weed, a tear, and they start to grow. Do you know what they're doing the whole time they're growing? They are competing with one another. They're fighting over the same water. They're fighting over the same sun, sunshine. They're fighting over the same nutrients. They're fighting over the same patch of ground all the way to the end. So my point is, from the very beginning, Esau has been the one that has been trying to crush the head of Jacob. Now, let's skip ahead a little bit here. If we move ahead in Scripture, let's go to the book of Esther, for instance. What do we see here? We see God's people in Persia. They are being threatened by the, a man by the name of Haman, or we, most of us would say Haman. But look at the Scriptures. You're going to notice that Haman or Haman is not a Persian but he is an Amalekite. In other words, he is a descendant of Amalek. And if you look through the scriptures, you see that Amalek is a descendant of Esau. So who was it in the book of Esther that was trying to destroy God's people? It was the house of Esau. Move ahead a bit further, and we come to Bethlehem, or Bethlehem, and the king of Israel is being born. Who is it that tries to kill him? Herod the Great who, if you look at the scriptures, is not a Jew, but he is an Edomaean. In other words, he is an Edomite. Edomea is the Greek transliteration of Edom. In other words, he is a descendant of Esau. So who was it in the beginning that's trying to crush Jacob's head? Esau. Who was it later on in the book of Esther that was trying to destroy God's people? Esau, or descendant of Esau. Who is it that is trying to destroy the king of Israel, the head of the body, it is a descendant of Esau. So if Esau is the one in the beginning trying to destroy Jacob, in the middle is to trying to destroy Jacob, if you will, and tries to decapitate the head of the body, the king of Israel, would we be surprised to learn that in the end it's going to be Esau trying to crush the head of Jacob? And don't overlook this point. That in the beginning, Esau aligned himself with Ishmael because if you go and look in the scriptures, you'll see that Esau went and took a daughter, excuse me, took a wife from among the daughters of Ishmael. So in, in reality, what was he doing? He was forming a confederacy with Ishmael, the other one who was slighted, at least from his point of view, the other one who lost out on the birthright, who lost out on the blessing. In other words, we have a confederacy of two uh, two people who in their mind 
have been robbed. What rightfully belonged to them has been taken, has been stolen. And by who? Israel. And so if you read the scriptures, you see that Esau and his descendants are continually trying to do what? To take back what they feel like they have lost. To regain, to recapture what they think was taken from them. I'll suggest to you that the reason Esau does this, the reason that Ishmael feels this way, is because their boss feels that way. And by that I mean the serpent. Because he said, I will ascend in the sides of the north. I will establish my throne there in the mount of the congregation. But what happened to him? He was tossed out. And so I'll suggest to you that the adversary has been trying to, in, in his mind anyway, regain what he feels like he lost, what be rightfully belongs to him. And so it's, it's only, uh, uh, it's only uh, logical that those he works through would be motivated by this same false and, uh, and, and, and wrong illusion. And so Esau, from the very beginning, has been trying to regain, again, in his mind, what he feels like he lost. But the point is, it was never his to begin with, because God is sovereign, and he is the one who chose, because God is the one who knows the hearts of men. He knew that Esau was profane. He knew that Esau had no regard for the birthright. And so Jacob I have loved, Yaakov I have loved, Esau I have rejected. Now, my, my whole point in going into this this way is to get you to see that from the very beginning, it's been Esau who has been trying to crush the head of Jacob. It was that way in the middle, and so it's going to be that way in the end. Because Isaiah 46, verses 8, 9, and 10, to put it briefly, says that God from the beginning has declared the end. Ecclesiastes 3.15, to paraphrase, says, if you want to understand what's going on today and what will happen tomorrow, then you have to understand what has already happened. And so if we want to correctly interpret the events that are going on right now in Israel, in, 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 and, and again, let me remind you that when I refer to Israel, I'm not just talking about the land of Israel. I'm not just talking about the Jews who live in the land of Israel. I am including them in that. But I want to expand your horizons and get you to understand that Israel, from God's point of view, includes all those who are believers in the Messiah, whether they understand that or not. So the, say, uh, the serpent is not going to come just after the Jews. He is going to come after all of Israel. Because whether you understand it, that you're part of Israel or not, I guarantee you the serpent is beginning to understand it. And so he's going to set his sights on, well, in Revelation 12, verse 17, it says it this way. On the one who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Yeshua, the Messiah. He's always worked through people. And from the very beginning, the one he used to, to attempt to crush Jacob's head again was Esau. He used Esau throughout history. And so we shouldn't be surprised to find that in the end, there are prophecies concerning Esau. Why? Because in the end, I'll suggest to you that the serpent is, is again going to use Esau or attempt to use Esau to crush Jacob's head. Now what we need to do is we want to begin to take a look at some of the things that happen in the end. And again, we're trying to understand why all this other stuff is going on in the Middle East. You know, why all this war? What, what's, what's taking shape here? Well, remember Psalm 83? Who were the first ones that is mentioned in this confederacy against Israel? 
the tents of Edom, Esau, and the Ishmaelites. Those are the primary two uh, confederates, if you will. And again, these are two that formed a confederation in the very beginning. They formed an alliance. They are intermarried. Now with that, I want you to turn over to the book of Ezekiel with me. And specifically, I want you to go to Ezekiel chapter 35. All right, Ezekiel chapter 35. Now, I'm not going to read all of this for the sake of time. But I, I want you to do something when you get home today or, or sometime this weekend. I want you to read Ezekiel 35, 36, 37, 38, and 39. And I want you to forget that those chapter headings are there, that the, the different verses are there, because Ezekiel didn't put those things there. But what I want you to do is I want you to read these chapters as one continuing prophecy, and because that's the way Ezekiel wrote it. I also want you to take note of the fact that when you get to the end of Ezekiel 39 and you get to Ezekiel 40, you will see that Ezekiel begins to turn his attention to the temple of the Messianic era. So his, his, uh, his focus has shifted. In, in other words, here's what I'm saying. Number one, from Ezekiel 35 through the end of Ezekiel 39, that I believe to be one continuing prophecy. In other words, a chronological sequence of events that happen at the end of days, which is my second point. And why, how do I know it would be at this end of days? Because at the end of Ezekiel 39, he begins to focus on the millennial temple. And of course, most of us know that Ezekiel 38 and 39 describes a war called the War of Gog of Magog. And everybody's looking or, you know, for this war to begin to develop and to begin to take shape. And a lot of people are saying that the, all the hostilities that are going on right now, that this is just the opening stages of Ezekiel 38 and Ezekiel 39, that the next thing that's going to happen is going to be this invasion of Gog of Magog. Well, I, I agree in the sense that what we're seeing is the opening the initial events that lead to that ultimately. However, I believe it's going to be become very apparent to you that before that war takes place, there has to be another war that takes place. And to understand that, we've got to read Ezekiel 35, 36, 37, 38, and 39 as one big prophecy. And so in Ezekiel 35, please take note that this is a prophecy against Mount Seir. Against Mount Seir. Now, who is Mount Seir? Well, Mount Seir is the habitation of Edom. And so Mount Seir is synonymous with Edom or the house of Esau. And so this judgment is against Esau. Now, why does this judgment come against Mount Seir or against uh, Edom? And here's why. Verse 5. Because you have had an ancient hatred and have shed the blood of the children of Israel by the power of the sword at the time of their calamity when their iniquity came to an end. And I don't have time to, to get into all the meanings of what that means, but basically is when God began to judge Israel, Esau saw this, and instead of being compassionate or, you know, or, or being in fear of the Lord's uh, might and power, instead they seized the opportunity to take what belonged to Israel. Therefore, as I live, in verse 6, says the Lord God, I will prepare you for blood, and blood shall pursue you. Since you have not hated blood, therefore blood will pursue you. So Esau is the one who is bloodthirsty, it seems. He, he's, he, he pursues blood. He doesn't hate blood, and therefore God says, well, okay, blood's going to pursue you. And now look at verse 10. 
And again, we don't have time to read all of this. But in verse 10, he says, Because you have said, These two nations and these two countries shall be mine, and we will possess them, although the Lord was there. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, I will do according to your anger and according to the envy which you showed in your hatred against them, and I will make myself known among them when I judge you. He, Esau wants the two nations. Remember, there were two nations growing in Rebekah's womb. And the two were going to be, you know, uh, going to be separated from her bowels. But what does Esau say in the end? Because Ezekiel 35 is a prophecy that I suggest to you has not yet occurred. How do I know that? Because Ezekiel 37, 38, 39, Ezekiel 36, those things have not come to fruition just yet either. So in the end, Esau is going to be saying these Two nations, both of these countries shall be mine, and we will possess them. And this is why the Lord's fury is incited against Esau. Now, I don't have, again, don't have time to read all this, but I want you to just continue, continue to look with me into Ezekiel 36. And, and forget that big 36 is there, because Ezekiel didn't put it there. But just continue to read, and here's what we see. In verse 1, it says, And you, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because the enemy has said of you, Aha, the ancient heights have become our possession. Now, who have we just been talking about? We've been talking about Edom, the house of Esau. And it says, Because the enemy has said of you, the ancient heights have become our possession. Therefore, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, because they made you desolate and swallowed you up on every side, so that you became the possession of the rest of the nations, and you were taken up by the lips of talkers and slandered by the people. Therefore, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, to the hills, the rivers, the valleys, the desolate wastes, and the cities that have been forsaken. Very interesting comment. And the cities that have been forsaken, which became plunder and mockery to the rest of the nations all around. Let, let, me, let me pause here. When I read this, here is the image I see in my mind. Cities that have been forsaken, which became plunder and mockery to the rest of the nations all around. Here, here's what I see. Do you remember the images on the television when Israelis were forcibly removed from their homes in the Gaza? And then after that, Palestinians moved in, some Palestinians moved into these places, into their homes, into their shops. They looted, they plundered, they burned, and then they had a big parade waving their flags and declaring a victory in the name of Allah. That's what I get in mind. That's the picture that I see in my mind. And what makes this uh, a little bit more interesting to me is that if, and I say if, Ehud Olmert follows through in what he said he's going to do, all Israelis will be removed from the so-called West Bank and then they will be forced to live inside a wall that's being built along the borders of the so-called West Bank and Israel. Now, the wall is intended to keep terrorists out and to separate these two peoples. If that happens, then ladies and gentlemen, what we saw on television when, when Israelis were removed from the Gaza, we, we'll see it even more so. And there will be these cities, these villages that will be forsaken. And then everything they leave behind will become plunder. They will be mocked by all of the nations around them. Think of who is around them. 
All right, there in verse 5, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Surely I have spoken in my burning jealousy against the rest of the nations and against all Edom. Why? Who gave my land to themselves as a possession with wholehearted joy and spiteful minds in order to plunder its open country. So he tells us who he's speaking about. In other words, there is a group of people who are living in the land of Israel, and particularly the mountainous regions of the land of Israel. And these people are claiming that land as theirs. They are not Israeli. It makes it very clear. In fact, he says who they are. They are the remnant of the nations, meaning they're you know, uh, different nationalities are represented, but the, pri uh, the primary uh, clan here, the primary family that is represented here is Edom. And Edom is the one primarily who says, this land does not belong to Israel, this land belongs to me. And so, in the land of Israel, if we ever have a situation where there's another group of people who are not Israeli, not considered Israeli, in fact, they don't like Israel, they don't make any bones about it, and they claim the mountainous regions, the ancient heights as their own, which, by the way, that would be... Um, in, in the Golan, that area in northern Israel, and a, lot of, a, lot of, uh, a large part of what is now known as the West Bank. This is where the mountains are. So if we ever have a situation where people who live in those regions that I just described, which would be predominantly the so-called West Bank, and they claim that land as theirs and, and refute the idea that it belongs to Israel, if we ever have a scenario like that, then we'll know that this prophecy is close to being fulfilled. Oh, wait a minute. We do have a situation like that, don't we? We're seeing it in our, on our television screens and reading it in our newspapers right now. Now, what does God say he's going to do concerning this situation? Verse 6, Therefore, prophesy concerning the land of Israel and say to the mountains, the hills, the rivers, the valleys, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I have spoken in my jealousy and my fury because you have borne the shame of the nations. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I have raised my hand in an oath that surely the nations that are around you shall bear their own shame, but you, O mountains of Israel. Now, here's a very, very critical verse. But you, O mountains of Israel, you shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they are about to come. Now, there's a couple of things that we see in this. Number one, God has said that he is going to, he infers it, because he's jealous and in his fury, he says, you, you are going to bear your own shame. These people who are laying claim to his land, these mountainous regions, specifically Esau. He infers that he is going to deal with them. And it is also inferred that the mountains that these people live on is not producing its fruit. Why? Because the wrong people live there. But the the land is one day going to shoot forth its branches and yield its fruit, but it's only going to be for his people, Israel, for they are about to come. Now, something very interesting here. We presently have a situation where there are people that the world calls Palestinians. I suggest to you the Bible calls them Edom. They claim these ancient heights as their, their own. They claim the so-called West Bank, which is where a lot of the mountainous regions are. They claim other areas. The Bible calls them Edom, and God says, I'm going to deal with Edom. 
But now we also have people living in the land, fighting for the land, dying for the land that the world refers to as Jews, Israel. Here's my point. They're already there. Edom, Palestinians, are already there. So who are these people that he calls my people Israel who are about to come? In other words, the people who are illegally living on the ancient heights, as far as God is concerned, illegally living there, primarily Esau. And what's Esau going to be trying to do? Trying to crush the head of Jacob. God's going to deal with them, and God is going to remove them. Why? Because he has other people who are going to come, and he refers to them as my people Israel, for they are about to come. Here's what I'm getting at. Ezekiel 35 and the opening verses of Ezekiel 36 are a prophecy against Edom, telling us that Edom is going to to have to go. Edom is going to have to be removed. And if Edom is the Palestinians, do you think they're going to go peaceably? Do you think they're just going to throw up their hands and say, okay, we've had enough, we'll move on? Absolutely not. So what are we saying here? What's going to happen in order for Edom to be removed? That's right, war. We're talking war. Well, Bill, you're a warmonger. No, I'm not. I'm just telling you what the scripture says. There is going to be a war that is hinted at here in Ezekiel 36. Why is this war going to take place? Well, you have to keep reading because God is about to bring his people, not just the ones who are there now, okay, but there's others of his people who are living throughout the world. And again, remember, in the Messiah, you too are part of Israel. Let me just go ahead and put it to you this way. And I know that this might be a shocker for some of you, but read the scriptures and see if I'm not telling you the truth. You are not going to spend eternity in heaven. I can see the shock on some of your faces. (laughs) You are not going to spend eternity in heaven. The scripture declares heaven, if you will, is coming down here. You are going to live here. God is going to reside here. How do I know that? Because that's how it was in the beginning. And God reveals everything about the end from the beginning. And in the beginning, Adam was not going off up into heaven, communing with God. No, God was coming down into the midst of the garden and communing with Adam there. That's the way it's going to work. So what am I getting at? You need to understand this, that one day, the scriptures declare that you are going to the land. And we're not talking about, you know, the uh, United States. We're talking about the Holy Land, Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. Why? Because that's where the Messiah is going to be. Again, why does this war that is hinted at in Ezekiel 36 happen? Well, Edom has to be removed. Edom is profane. Edom has no regard for the birthright. And what are we talking about here? When we talk about the land of Israel, well, let me put it this way. You need to understand this. That God made promises to Abraham and to his seed, not seeds as of many, but one seed, that is, in Galatians 3.16, that seed is Messiah. Verse 29 says, though, but if you are Messiahs, then you are the seed of Abraham and heirs according to the promise. The promise he made to Abraham. What was one of the main uh, components of the promise that he made to Abraham? Land. What land? Not just any land but the holy land, the land of Israel. And so that's why Esau wants it, because it's part of the covenant. It's part of the promise. But you and I have been brought into this covenant. You and I have been brought into this promise through the Messiah. So do you know what I'm getting at here? You cannot separate the land from the covenant. 
And if we are partakers of the covenant, according to Ephesians 2 through Messiah, then you know what? That land is my land too. Now, I want you to understand, I'm not taking anything away from the fact that there are Jews who live there who fight and bleed and die for the land, and I haven't. I'm living over here. I don't want to take anything away from that, but nevertheless, if I am part of the covenant, that land, according to Scripture, belongs to me too. And so that's why when I'm watching things happening on the television concerning the land, it makes me so angry. Because you you realize that when people start messing with the land, they are tampering with the covenant. Esau has no regard for the covenant. Jacob does. Israel does. Now, again, I understand that the Jews are the ones fighting for the land. They're the ones in the land today. But Edom is in the land today too. That's who Jacob is fighting. But Edom, according to the scripture, is going to be removed. And as if I'm correct, it's going to be through war. But why does this war take place? So that all his other people can come. Who are his people? Israel. How do I know this? Well, Ezekiel 37 describes it. And to make it very, very short, because I know we're on limited time here, Ezekiel 36 happens, Ezekiel 35 happens, so that Ezekiel 37 may occur. And what is Ezekiel 37? Well, in a nutshell, it describes two trees. It's, it's translated sticks, but in reality, the Hebrew word there is etz, which means a tree. There are two trees, one representing Judah and one representing Joseph. And these two trees come together as one. And if you read it, they come together in the land. Now, who are these two trees? Well, Judah, that one's easy. Jews come from Judah. Jews are living around the world, but are, are starting to congregate in the land of Israel today. But who is Joseph? Well, what was Joseph? Joseph is one who is hidden among the nations. He is made to look like a Gentile. He speaks as a Gentile. He acts like a Gentile. He has a Gentile wife, and he functions as a Gentile to some, to some degree. But it doesn't change the fact that he is a son of Israel. He still has that same seed. And by that, I mean Luke 8, verse 11 says, the seed is the word of God. So he always had something that linked him to his brothers, even though outwardly he looked different. He's hidden among the nations. And why is he hidden among the nations? Because if Joseph is not in Egypt, what happens to Israel? Israel perishes. But here's something very interesting, and, and we're going to tie this back in to something we read earlier. His name, that is, the name that is given him by Pharaoh, not a Hebrew name, mind you, but an Egyptian name is Zafnat Paneach, which means, according to which commentary you read, the revealer of hidden things. Another translation is one who provides the bread of life. And then the third is the salvation of the world. But here is the point I want to make. Zafnat comes from the same root word, Zafan. If you were going to transliterate that, it would be T-Z-A-F-A-N, I believe. But Zafan means hidden or concealed. What's interesting about this, it's Zafan is the root for the term Zephunecha, that is translated in Psalm 83 as hidden ones or sheltered ones or precious ones, treasure, hidden treasure. In other words, the ones in Psalm 83 that 
God's enemies are conspiring against. They are conspiring against Zephonecha, the hidden ones. I want to throw something out at you just for your consideration. And again, this is not taken any way from the fact that there are Jews who are bleeding and dying in defense of the land. But we know who the Jews are. The whole world knows who the Jews are. So what do you think the psalm means in, in Psalm 83 when it talks about the hidden ones or the sheltered ones? And again, that term zephonecha, hidden ones, comes from the same root word that gives us zafnat, as in zafnat paneach, who was the one that God had hidden among the nations. And why had God hidden him among the nations? So that in a time of distress and peril and famine, if he's not there, then Israel would perish. But in ultimately, what, what, why is Joseph there? So the two can become one again. So the two trees can become one again. But this time, it won't be in the land of Egypt. According to Ezekiel 37, the two, Joseph and Judah, are going to become one in the land. They're going to come together, and here's the inference, and they together are going to defeat Edom, Esau. Now, you'll have to come to your own conclusions as who Joseph is, but he's hidden. He's hidden not just in any nation, by the way. He's hidden in the most powerful nation on earth at that time. Outwardly, he looks like a Gentile. He speaks like a Gentile, but he knows that on the inside, he's the son of Israel. And Ezekiel 37 describes these two, Joseph and Judah, coming together, becoming one in the land. How do we know that, that this means that Edom has to go? Well, because the land that is the so-called West Bank, in the beginning, ultimately, a lot of that was deeded to Joseph and his sons. So Joseph and Judah come together to do what? To defeat Edom. To defeat Edom and remove him. Ezekiel 35 and Ezekiel 36 happens so that Ezekiel 37 may happen. Now, if you don't believe me, go quickly to the book of Obadiah. Quickly to the book of Obadiah. And this is what Obadiah says. And, and just it's a very short book. But I want you to see that Obadiah is a prophecy against Edom. And I want you to consider that this prophecy should be read in conjunction with Ezekiel 35 and Ezekiel 36. And look at what Obadiah says. He describes a messenger who is going to be sent among the nations, causing them to rise up against Edom. Now, in describing Edom, this is what the Bible says. The pride of your heart has deceived you. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, you who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Now look at verse 4. Though you ascend as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. Now, a lot of people have read that and have concluded that this is a reference to the United States. But I, I want you to consider that we, if we read this in conjunction with Ezekiel 35 and 36, that this is a prophecy against people who claim the ancient heights as theirs. And I will suggest to you that the United States, even though we are complicit in parting the land, don't, don't misunderstand me, I, I fully understand our uh, uh, unfortunate role in all of this, but nevertheless, we are not claiming the ancient heights as being ours. Esau is. And so I suggest to you this prophecy is not against the United States. 
It is against Edom, just who it says it is. And Edom is Esau, and Edom is claiming the ancient heights as theirs. And there's more clues here in just a minute, but I just want to make this one other point. A lot of people see that the eagle and the stars jumping out there, that, that just screams the United States. But you need to understand that there are a lot of countries who claim and who have the eagle as their emblem, including most Muslim countries, but, uh, but absolutely including the Palestinian Authority. In fact, the eagle of Saladin is the emblem for many Muslim countries. And the eagle of Saladin, Saladin was a, was a famous Islamic warrior who conquered Jerusalem. The eagle of Saladin has in its talons the globe clutched in, in, its, in its talons, symbolizing that Islam's uh, ultimate destiny is to control the entire world. And so the point is, is that the Palestinian Authority has as its emblem the eagle as well. So, but there, but there are other things here that hint at who these people are. Why is this judgment coming against the house of Esau? Well, it's, the purpose is found in verse 10. Of course, we've already read what Ezekiel 35 and 36 has to say about this. But in verse 10 of Obadiah, it says, For violence against your brother Jacob... Shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. Now, here's what I find fascinating about this particular verse. Some of you might know this already. Many of you do not. But it gives us a clue that, to me, is a slam dunk on who this prophecy is against. Here's why. Because the word that is translated as violence in Obadiah 10 is the Hebrew word Hamas. In other words, it says for Hamas against your brother Jacob, shame will cover you and you will be cut off forever. Now, Hamas should sound familiar to you all because that is the name of the Islamic resistance movement, Hamas. That's the acronym. Hamas, by the way, also is an Arabic word that means fighting zeal. But in Hebrew, it means violence. And so for Hamas against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you will be cut off forever. Now, am I to conclude that the, the presence of the word Hamas in a prophecy against Edom, who I believe to be modern-day Palestinians, modern-day Palestinians are the ones who gave us the organization called Hamas. It is a Palestinian terror group. And by the way, as most of you know, just months ago, more Palestinians than not voted to elect Hamas as the official representative of their government. In other words, more Palestinians than not elected people to govern them that they knew to be murderers, that they knew to be people who would violently pursue the destruction of Israel, would seek to kill every Jewish man, woman, and child they could if it furthered their goals. More Palestinians than not voted for these people to represent them to the world. So now, what does that say for the Palestinian people at large? Now, I understand that individuals is different, but what does that say for the Palestinian people at large? It convinces me, anyway, that at large, they are what the Bible says they are. Edom, the house of Esau, the one who wants to crush his brother's head. So for violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you will be cut off forever. Now, what makes this even more interesting is the people, because God works through flesh and blood, remember, 
who are the people that it seems that God uses for this purpose? Well, we have to go on down to verse, we're going to look at verse 17. It says, but on Mount Zion, there shall be deliverance and there shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. They're going to have what is promised to them. Now look at verse 18. The house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau shall be stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them, and no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, it seems to me that the prophecy against Edom, the prophecy says that says because of the Hamas against your brother Jacob, shame is going to cover you, you're going to be cut off forever, that the people that God uses to bring this about is the house of Jacob, and the house of Joseph. Now keep in mind that, you know, it's my belief anyway, that Ezekiel 35 and Ezekiel 36, the inferred war with Esau, Edom, happens so that Ezekiel 37 may take place. And what does Ezekiel 37 take, uh, describe? It describes Judah and Joseph. And who is Joseph? The one outwardly who looks like a Gentile, the one who is hidden among the nations, but not just any nation the most powerful nation that was then on earth. But Ezekiel 37 describes these two trees, sounds like Romans 11, these two trees coming together in the land. And if they come together in the land, then that means that Edom has been removed from the land. In verse 18 of Obadiah, it says, No survivor shall remain of the house of Esau. And who is mentioned in that same verse? The house of Jacob. There'll be a fire and the house of Joseph shall be a flame. And so I guess it just depends on who you think the house of Joseph might be referring to as to how you think this prophecy might come about. My opinion is that the house of Joseph refers to those hidden ones that is alluded to in Psalm 83. And if Joseph was hidden in what was then the most powerful nation on earth, and if we have a nation that would qualify for today in the end for being at least currently the most powerful nation on earth, then it seems to me that Joseph might be found in that nation. And I don't mean in the sense that there are, they are descendants of Joseph in a, a flesh and blood sense, but Joseph in the sense that they outwardly look like Gentiles, speak as Gentiles, action, act like Gentiles, function like Gentiles. In fact, they've been placed here for a particular purpose, and that's to see that this nation survives. Why? Because there's going to come a day of calamity when Israel is going to be threatened, and these two are going to have to come together, because if Joseph is not hidden in Egypt, then Israel perishes. And so it seems to me that if the, the pattern is constant, there would have to be a very powerful nation in which people lived in that nation who understood who their brother was, because you see, they've always had the common seed, the word of God, Luke chapter 8, verse 11, Matthew 13, Mark chapter 4. Uh, can you think of anybody who might qualify for that, who might inwardly know that they are part of Israel? They, are, they have that same seed, but outwardly they know they, they look different, they speak different than their Jewish brothers and sisters, and they live in what would be the most powerful nation on earth. They have been hidden among that, that, the nations. Maybe they've been hidden purposely by God 
because he didn't want Esau to know who they were. Because if Esau knew who they were, then he would try to destroy them too. But then in the end, if that seed is in them, then they're going to start producing the fruit of that seed. And when you see the fruit, everybody knows who you are. And so that's why, ladies and gentlemen, Psalm 83, they conspire not just against the Jews who live in the land of Israel. They conspire against your sheltered ones because they want to wipe Israel off the face of the map, that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. You see, the serpent is beginning to see that all of Israel encompasses more than just the Jews. I'm not eliminating the Jews. I'm not replacing the Jews. They are part of Israel. But all Israel, from the biblical point of view, is going to include every believer in Messiah. And so, in other words, the serpent has all of Israel in his sights. Isn't it interesting that in the Middle East, there are those who understand that to get at little Satan, that is Israel, we first have to deal with big Satan, that is the United States. Why do you think they believe that? I believe it's because their boss understands that there have been Joseph's hidden all over the world, mind you, but he's put Joseph by and large in a concentrated form, if I can put it that way, in what is now the most powerful nation on earth. Everybody's heard of this guy, uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, who is the king of Persia, or the president of Persia. I want to make this very brief because I know we're running out of time here, but I want you to understand this. I'm not just saying this, but people on, you know, the, the politicians and the military strategists are saying that Persia ultimately is behind all this and that he is working through Hamas, Hezbollah, and even the Syrians. And he is using them as pawns, if you will. And that's a very interesting concept because the game of chess originated in Persia or present-day Iran. And so I suggest to you that the prince of Persia <laughs> is playing chess and is more than willing to use the pawns, the Palestinians, Hamas, Hezbollah, and even the Syrians to some extent, in order to draw his enemy into a trap. Now consider the game of chess, and this is probably what we'll have to close with. Consider the game of chess as a game whereby you want to maneuver your pieces into a place where they can put the opponent's king in checkmate. Now that king can only move one space at a time. Uh, but that is nevertheless the most important piece. However, even though it's not impossible, it is very difficult, extremely difficult, to put your opponent's king in checkmate while his queen is still on the board. So what do you do? You use your pawns, you sacrifice them in order to draw your opponent's queen into a trap. Once you take his queen off the board, it's simply a matter of time before you put his king and checkmate. And so here's what I'm getting at, ladies and gentlemen. I believe that all the things that are going on right now, the Prince of Persia has in mind to lure big Satan, the queen, into a trap. Because if he can neutralize the queen, then he knows it's only a matter of time before he can put the king, Israel, in checkmate. He is more than willing to sacrifice the pawns, the Palestinians, Edom, in order to achieve his purposes. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if there is going to be a war with Edom, it certainly seems that, first of all, Edom's going to be destroyed. Secondly, who is he going to use? Who is God going to use to bring this about? 
the house of Jacob, the house of Joseph. It just, I guess, again, depends on who you think those are. But nevertheless, Edom will be destroyed. And if Joseph and Judah, according to Ezekiel 37, become one in the land, and they have become one in the land because they together have destroyed Esau, and if those people are the Palestinians, how do you think the world is going to respond to that? Well, Ezekiel 38 and 39 gives you their response. They are going to invade the mountains of Israel. They're going to cover it as a cloud, and they are going to come into a land of unwalled villages. The wall that is being built to keep the Palestinians out or the terrorists out and keep Israelis in, if the Palestinians, i.e. Edom, is destroyed by the house of Jacob and the house of Joseph, then there won't be a need for a wall, but Gog will come down into a land of unwalled villages. And look at the nations that are listed. You will see Persia among them. However, you will not see Edom. Frankly, you won't see Babylon mentioned. You won't see Syria mentioned. And is it because that some of these nations have been destroyed in a war that precedes the war of Gog and Magog. And here, here's the bottom line, ladies and gentlemen. The things that are happening today are setting the stage for this next war that's going to come, the war with the house of Esau. And that war, when it is over and done, and the two become one in the land, then you will see the war of Gog and Magog. And so what am I saying? War is coming. But are we to look down, you know, at the ground and go, woe is me? No, the Messiah said, when you see these things begin to happen, to look up because you know your redemption is near. God bless you. is built on solid rock. Yes, you are. The rock of our salvation on Solace Radio.